Welcome to ChemEngCast, the podcast from the Department of Chemical Engineering at Imperial College London. We interview researchers and academics in the department to find out what they're working on and ask them to explain their research in easy to understand terms. I'm Sarah and I'm the Communications Manager for the department. And I'm Ben and I'm a PhD student in the department. And today we're interviewing Neelay Shah, OBE, Professor of Process Systems Engineering and former Head of the Department of Chemical Engineering here at Imperial College. Like everyone else you're interviewing, I guess my interest is in chemical engineering and particularly I like using mathematical models to look at a whole range of things that are broadly related to chemical engineering. And two big things I'm working on at the moment are processes that support reducing carbon emissions from industry or from energy and second of all processes that help us produce different kinds of therapeutic products more efficiently. So those include things like vaccines and antibodies. Well, this is actually a really nice tie-in because episode one of the podcast, we had someone that was in- interested in carbon capture. And episode two, we had someone that was interested in like advanced pharmaceutical manufacturing. So, Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> you, are the, uh, you are the person that ties it all together. You know, uh, to, if you were to explain to someone like me who doesn't have a kind of science background, like what kind of, what are the mathematical models that you use? And you know how how do they work and how do you kind of decide on what you're going to use for different situations yeah so we always start from trying to understand what the actual problem is because often people have a tool or a framework and they're looking for a problem but we like to look at it the other way so we talk to people in industry we talk to people in government and the like and, and really try to get a good understanding of what the problem is and nearly always you find that there's a certain aspect of the system that you're looking at that is constraining the performance, either in terms of cost or in terms of efficiency. So you're trying to zoom in on that. And then what you're trying to do with your models is understand what's going on in terms of how do the different elements of that system affect each other? Do they affect each other positively or negatively? Is it a strong or a weak interaction? And then if you've got more data, you can start to put some quantification into that interaction. And that way you can start to build an actual mathematical model of how the different components of your system affect the overall performance. And then you can look at what levers can you pull? What changes can you make? You can maybe re-engineer a process or you could re-engineer an organism that's been used in that process or you can integrate multiple systems together. So you have to look at the levers. And so by having an understanding of the system you're looking at and the levers you can pull, you put those two together. And then without spending any actual money on capital equipment, but just through your model, you can look at all the different interventions you can make. And then that way you can identify what are perhaps the most promising ones. And then you can go and test them maybe in a lab or in an industrial process. So to my mind, carbon capture and sort of manufacturing therapeutics seem really different processes. So so what is it that, that ties these together and, and how have you ended up working on two things that, yeah. at least on the surface of it, seem really different? Yes, it's a good point. And I think the, the way I would look at it is, is if we think of the, the engineers that we educate, we have to educate chemical engineers that when they leave, 
they would be equally comfortable with one or the other if they were faced with them. So the, the key thing is you have to go back to some fundamental principles and look at things like what's going on with the material flows through the system, which materials are being used, how are they being used, what's the rate of uptake, um, what are the rate determining steps in the process, where is energy being used, where is energy being uh, generated, how does the performance depend on scale, how does it depend on the purity of, of the input materials, where is it important to take heat out, where is it important to put heat in, what concentration should you run at. So once you go to these fundamental chemical engineering principles, they apply equally to both um, because you've got your, your conservation equations, your rate equations, your transport phenomena, and actually surprisingly, once you get to that level of detail, some of the challenges are quite similar. We wonder why this is an important field of research. Why is mathematical modeling of these obviously important processes really important? It's mostly because you, you, you can build a really good understanding and explore lots of options and remove risk without spending lots of money. So if, if you didn't have the, the modeling, first of all, you'd have to do lots and lots and lots more experiments. And then you'd have to build um, pilot plants at different scales before you had the confidence to implement something. So really what the modeling does is it allows you to circumvent a lot of experiments and a lot of capital investment because you're testing out things in the computer. So I work a lot with Formula One people nowadays, and um, they told me that a lot of their most uh, important innovations that they've done uh, in, in over the many years are, are based on computational fluid mechanics, understanding the fluid mechanics of a car. And so they would do lots and lots and lots of computations before they would go and do work in a wind tunnel and make changes to the car. And I'd say it's very much the same thing with chemical processes. You end up saving a lot of time and money, basically. That's really cool. To know that you were working with um, Formula One. Mm. We're working on, 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 on synthetic fuels, but the people I'm, I'm working with have come from that industry. So you've covered some, some of the kind of um, benefits of, of your field of research. What about the challenges? Like, What are some of the biggest challenges that you face? Probably the most important is, is getting the complexity right, because the, I, I suppose the challenge with modelling is you can always go into more and more detail. So you have to understand for the question that you're interested in, what's the appropriate level of detail? So I think that's one thing that's still a bit more of an art than a science. And then the second one is data, you know, especially when you're dealing with new processes. Where do you get data from? Usually it's the situation you're in is quite data scarce. So you have to somehow try to find some data or work with some people who are doing experiments and help them uh, design experiments to get you the data you need. Why do you think ordinary, non-scientific people should be really interested in what you're working on? It actually has become easier to do what we're doing because I think we've become better at using the kind of techniques we're developing to create visualizations of what new technologies might look like before you've even built them. So you could sort of use your models to design processes and create simulations of processes and actually use those to show people that if you did something differently, this is how it would look, this is what it would cost, this is what the energy consumption would be, this would 
CO2 emissions. And so actually by creating models of systems and then using the data for those in, in a creative way, it's actually quite easy to demonstrate to people the value of what you're doing because you can actually come up with some really nice visualizations that, that make it very clear. I'm going to move away from your research and ask you something slightly different now. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2020, you received an OBE. Um, what did that feel like? What was that experience like for you? Well, it was a really nice surprise. I mean, I wasn't expecting it at all because the way that process works, it's, it's quite mysterious because somebody nominates you, but you don't know. So normally, if you're being nominated for something like a medal, usually no, because someone will contact you and say, I want to nominate you for this prize. Uh, is that okay with you? And you know, you'd say, probably say yes. And then they say, well, in that case, I need these various details so I can fill in the application form. With, with the honours system, you're not meant to know, and I certainly didn't know. And so somebody's doing that on your behalf. And I still don't know who it was. Um, so obviously they've had to go to quite a lot of work to whatever produce the case and send it in. So it's it, it, it was really nice to think that someone went to all that effort and then that, you know, the judging panel felt that the case was worthy. And I think most importantly was that the citation was for contribution to decarbonisation. So it was, it was very nice to be recognised for something that's seen as useful. So yeah, so it was a very, very nice surprise, completely out of the blue. I just got a letter, came through the letterbox. What happens when you when you get one? Do you so normally what happens is you have a, uh, a, a, a proper ceremony at Buckingham Palace where you can take your family um, and you receive your medal. Then it would have been from the Queen. But uh, it was COVID. So they initially just postponed that while they worked out what was going on. And then eventually there were some different options. Someone could bring it to your house. You could have it posted to you and then go to the garden party or you could wait and then you could go to one of these ceremonies. But in the end, what we did was I, I went for the option of it being posted to the house. And then I did get an invitation to the Buckingham Palace garden party, which we went to in May 2022 with my wife and daughter and sister, because you're allowed to bring three three guests. You know, so we, we've come to where you, that is like the pinnacle of your career, I guess, if you look at it in a sense, mm. being recognised in that way. But something we like to ask people on the podcast is a bit about understanding their journey to where they are now. And up to now, mm. we've been interviewing people much earlier on in their careers. But yeah, could you talk a bit about like where you where you grew up and your journey to Imperial and your journey to yeah, sure. where you are now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Kenya. Uh, I was always interested in science. So from the age of about six, my mom called me professor, which is quite funny to think back on that. Um, yeah, I was probably not, a, I wasn't a very hardworking kid. I sort of had the attitude of enjoying school life, but doing enough work to, to, to do okay. And then my, um, my classmates at school, you know, they have that thing of what are you most likely to do in the in the in your yearbook. Mine was to go and work at NASA because being at school in the 70s and early 80s, I think NASA at that time was was a was a was a really famous and big thing, more maybe more than now. But I I, I 
liked chemistry and I liked engineering. I didn't really like chemistry from the point of view of doing pure science, though. So I, I suppose I found the idea of doing chemical engineering very interesting. So I came to Imperial uh, and did my undergrad there, just like I suppose you are doing. And then I became very interested in, in, in this issue of using computers and maths and modeling and wanted to do more of that. And we had a, you know, the world's most famous professor in that area, together with a, a young academic um, working in that field. So they were Roger Sargent, who was the professor, and Costas Pontelides, who was the, the young academic. And they had a joint project, which sounded really exciting, which was about optimizing processes. And so I, I stayed on to do a PhD with them. And then I was doing some work in the department. I applied for a lectureship and I, I, I got that. But they said, you can have some time to go and do something else. So I had a secondment at Shell to get some industrial experience as well. So I, I, I spent some time away from the college working at Shell, still working on optimization and modeling. That was really interesting just to see how they do it in industry. Also, to get an idea of do I prefer academia or industry? Definitely liked it at Shell, but I thought, yeah, okay, I, I'll definitely go back when my secondment is up. So I came back and I was a lecturer, um, been working on, on the same sorts of things then uh, ever since I started and did quite a few roles in the department. So I did the um, postgraduate admissions tutor, director of the what was then called CPSE, now called Sergeant Centre, after Roger Sargent, director of undergraduate studies, director of research, head of department. So I've done a, a, a number of uh, interesting roles in the department. Been involved in a couple of startup companies as well, which is also fun, gives, gives a nice change from academic life where you, you can sort of um, take some risks, do some commercial activities, uh, work with colleagues on, on exciting new things in parallel with the college stuff. Yeah, and then and then here I am. So I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's a particularly well planned journey, and I've I've had a lot of good luck along the way, I should say, and had a lot of really really clever people working with me, which uh, is probably one of the great privileges of being at Imperial. One thing I have to ask from that: so you've obviously been working in a fairly similar area with Roger Sargent and mathematical optimization since your PhD. Mm. I mean, what, how have you seen the field change? You're obviously really well placed to see these broad changes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's two, two main things. One is we're able to do so much more in terms of the complexity of models that we can build and solve. And second, I think what's more interesting is probably the challenges that we need to look at are broader. So early on, the model being used to make processes more efficient, essentially, that was the main focus. But now we're trying to use those same models to look at supply chains, energy systems, industrial systems. So you've got much broader problems and much stronger focus on things like sustainability or affordability or innovation. So the problems are, are not just industrial, they're more societal problems as well. I think that leads really nicely onto what is usually one of our wrap-up questions, which is sort of where are you seeing the field 
going in the next 20, 30 years? What do you think is next for for your field and I guess society as a whole? You're, we were quite well placed to yeah, talk about. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's going to be a fantastic age for chemical engineers because it's going to be a golden age for chemical engineering. Every single industrial process is going to have to change because we have to stabilise greenhouse gas emissions so that they no, no longer accumulate in the atmosphere and probably actually reduce atmospheric concentrations of at least CO2. That means every single industrial process has to change. That means every industrial process needs some degree of re-engineering. And probably we need to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that is actually just a, a classical chemical engineering challenge. A lot of chemical engineers are working on that. So I think there are really exciting things happening around sustainability. And then the second area is really around healthcare, which is, I think we now have a much better understanding of how the human body works and how future therapies might be uh, made available for things like cancer, um, a lot of the neurodegenerative diseases, autoimmune diseases, and of course, pandemics. And Although those discoveries are driven by clinical and life sciences, very quickly there'll be some exciting manufacturing challenges about making new kinds of molecules, especially I think making um, therapies that are targeted to small subpopulations because they are targeting different genetic differences between people. So how do you develop manufacturing processes that make small quantities of similar things but they're tailored to different individuals and of course, layered on that is the information uh, revolution. So you'll, you'll have this incredible information about people or about products or markets that you can use to drive your, your manufacturing processes and automate your manufacturing processes. So you, you know, imagine you can just dial in, I want to make therapies for people with these genetic profiles next week. You just dial that in, goes into the control system, your products are made, they're labeled, specifically for those people and off they go so i think this this combination of biological science information science sustainability is going to create a lot of exciting opportunities for chemical engineering yes amazing and chemical engineering feels pretty centrally placed at all of these things which almost feel like science fiction really don't they mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah to have these personalized healthcare type things and Yes. So what one project I'm involved in is, can you make fuel from air, water and electricity, for example? What's the simple answer? Yes or yes. no? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Actually, I managed to fly an aeroplane on fuel made from that air, water and electricity. So, yeah, it can be done. Cool. It's expensive. Yeah. Is that hydrogen fuel? No, it's hydrocarbons. So, yeah, you, you, you make hydrogen from the water, you take CO2 from the air, and then through a series of reactions, between the CO2 and the hydrogen, you, you make gasoline or, or jet fuel. And just one quick question of the, the back of what you were saying. Um, and also, I just wanted to say as well, I think something mm. that's really nice is when you talk about your work, Nilo, like obviously you've been working in the field for quite a while, but there's still that kind of passion and enthusiasm for, that you have for your work. And yeah. I think that really rubs off, you know, when you're having a conversation with you, just yeah. that it can still be really exciting, these new things. There's always kind something of learning. new. That's, yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the question I wanted to ask was, um, mm -hmm. what do you think is the key to, you know, talked about kind of healthcare and medicines, but also 
um, you know, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. What do you think the key is to moving from the kind of the theory and the modeling that you're doing to then the practical application of it and making sure that your work is reaching those people who can actually put those kind of solutions into practice? Uh, definitely collaboration. Yeah? So I think collaboration with industry, collaboration with startups, collaboration with experimentalists. Who's, the point about engineering is no person can do very much by themselves. In science, that's not always the case. You know, scientists might come up with a theory, whether that's a mathematician, physicist, or maybe even a chemist. But I think in engineering, there's very little you can just do by yourself. So you can have some good ideas, but then you've got to go and find a team and work with a team to bring them to reality. So I think that's, again, one of the things we really encourage in our engineering education is, is the importance of collaboration and teamwork. 